Welcome to Appearance Matters, the podcast, the appearance psychology podcast brought to you by the Centre for Appearance Research, a world-leading research centre based at the University of the West of England in Bristol, investigating everything related to the psychology of how we look. I'm Nadia. And I'm Maya. Oh, hello there, new podcast co-host. Hello, I'm so happy to be part of the team. Welcome, Maya. Very soon to be Dr. Thornton, I should add. For our listeners, Maya flew through her PhD Viber this week, a triumph that can only be topped by debuting as an appearance that is the podcast co-host. Just kidding. Um, we, I think we've spoken about PhD Vibers before on the podcast, but for those of you who are unfamiliar with the process, it's essentially a two to three hour oral exam where a couple of examiners quiz you about the work you've been doing for the past three or more years. A little intense, but it can be fun. Um, Maya, how did you find it? And it would be wonderful if you could give us a short intro for our listeners. Thanks, Nadia. Yeah, it's been quite a week. Um, yeah, like you said, the Viber process itself um, can be quite intense, uh, but it's also just a really good opportunity to talk about the cool work you've spent the last three years or so on. Uh, definitely challenging in places, but I did really enjoy the chance to talk to my um, examiners about my PhD, which is about developing support for parents of children with an appearance affecting condition or injury. I won't go into it now because we'll, we'll be here forever, but I did actually speak to Jane about it on a previous podcast episode. So go check that out if you're interested in hearing more. Yeah, brilliant. And I think the other thing to say about the PhD Viva is that you're speaking to the few people in the world who have read the whole thesis. So it is um, definitely good from that perspective. It's a good opportunity. And yes, of course, the podcast episode you did, I believe it's episode number 59. Does that sound about right to you? Yeah, 59, Parenting a Child with a Visible Difference. That's me. Brilliant. Okay, well, it's so good to have you and Abby join the podcast team. So there are now four podcast co-hosts. So myself, Nadia, Bruna, you, Maya, and Abby, which means that we are going to be mixing it up episode to episode. So keeping everyone on their toes. Exactly. So great to be involved and looking forward to bringing you lots of exciting podcast content. Okay, let's get into the episode. So what are we talking about today? So this episode is hopefully the first of a short series focused on body image in Indonesia that we're going to be drip feeding over the next year or so, I imagine. There is a small team of us at the Centre for Appearance Research who are working on a number of projects in Indonesia and we want to showcase our work. So we are testing a number of body image interventions designed for young people in Indonesia as well as validating a number of psychological measures, including a measure of body image, a measure of self-esteem, a measure of mood, that kind of thing. Great. So these are all Dove self-esteem project partnership projects, right? Can you tell us a little bit about the interventions? Yes, that's right. A lot of projects in that sentence, but yes, <laughs> of, of course. So I don't want to give too much away because we're going to hopefully be doing some feature-long episodes to talk more about the two interventions. But As a teaser, we are testing the effectiveness and acceptability, so does it work and do people like it, um, of a school-based single-session body image intervention called Dove Confident Me Indonesia. It's a spin-off of an existing evidence-based program called Dove Confident Me, which was tested in the UK in a research trial 
back in 2015, I think, led by Professor Philippa Diedrichs at the centre. So this lesson was adapted for Indonesian adolescents aged 12 to 15, and it was designed to be integrated into UNICEF Indonesia's life skills education curriculum. Um, so we are supporting a partnership between the Dove Self-Esteem Project and UNICEF. Then we are also testing the effectiveness, so does it work, of a new social media body image intervention for young Indonesian women called Wana Wani Waktu, which means colourful time travel. That was co-created by members of the Centre for Appearance Research, academic partners at the University of Indonesia and the University of Hawaii, Girl Effect, which is an international nonprofit that builds media content to equip girls with skills to make positive choices and changes in their lives, the Dove Self-Esteem Project, Percolate Galactic, an Indonesian-based creative agency that specializes in marketing for young people, as well as Indonesian women. A lot in there, but hopefully get to hear a lot more about it in due course. That's great. And if you follow the Centre for Appearance Research on Instagram, you can get a sneak preview of both interventions. We'll put links in the show notes. And if you're really keen, you can also read the protocol papers that detail the process of developing each intervention and how we plan to evaluate them. Yeah, brilliant. Thanks, Maya. We'll put both of the links of both of those papers in the show notes as well. And the good news is that they're open access, which means that they're free for anyone to read. And if you're not already, do make sure that you're subscribed to the podcast so then you can be the first to hear more about both projects when they do drop on the podcast right okay so now let's really get into the episode great what's on the agenda yes so on this episode I'm really excited because I am in conversation with one of our Indonesian collaborators Dr Ayu Saraswati an author teacher speaker consultant and an associate professor in women gender and sexuality studies at the University of Hawaii We mostly talk about appearance standards in Indonesia and colorism, a topic that I'm super interested in, and it's a great conversation. Oh, I can't wait to listen. Let's hear it. Hi, my name is Ayu Saraswati. I am an associate professor in women, gender and sexuality studies at the University of Hawaii. I have published two solo author books. The first one is titled Seeing Beauty, Sensing Race in Transnational Indonesia. And the second book is about social media titled Pain Generation, Social Media, Feminist Activism and the Neoliberal Selfie. Um, I have also co-edited Introduction to Women's Studies textbook and Feminist and Queer Theory textbook. And um, I live in Honolulu. That's amazing. Welcome, Ayu, to Appearance Matters, the podcast. It's such a treat to have you on the show. We've been wanting you on ever since we first met back, ooh, what was it, three years ago? I'm not so sure. What is time anymore? I don't know. Before the pandemic, I think we we started. And I was so excited about your all of your projects. And it is um, such an honor, obviously, to be able to, um, to be here. And I did check out your podcast. So I'm super excited uh, this morning. At least it's morning here. <laughs> well, it is evening here. The joys of working across different time zones. But we always make it work so well. The honour is all ours. We're super excited and so, so happy to be working with you across all of our Indonesian projects that we're working on at CAR. So jumping right in, we're talking today about Indonesia, appearance ideals in Indonesia, skin colour, colourism, 
And as a starting point to help set the scene, I wonder if you could share with us perhaps one of your favourite things about Indonesia or something you think an international audience should know about Indonesia. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, maybe I'll start with the basic information. Um, yeah, uh, I will uh, say that uh, Indonesia is the fourth most populous country in the world. It is the largest um, Muslim country in the world as well. It is an archipelago of over 17,000 islands. And the most famous is Bali. So usually when I say Indonesia, some people may like not sure exactly where that is. But the minute I say Bali, they're like, ah, yeah, mm-hmm. I've always wanted to go there or, or, or something <laughs> yeah. of that sort. And uh, and Bali is one of my favorite islands, too. The other favorite island, obviously, is Java island uh, where I was born and if you are a coffee drinker I'm sure you've heard of Java Mm -hmm. coffee Um, so um, those are some of the things that I would like to share but the other thing that I love about Indonesia and this is why living in Hawaii right now um, is super awesome and fantastic for me is that it is a tropical country Um, sun almost always (laughs) uh, available great weather and so uh, and the other thing is when I when people ask me what do you miss most about Indonesia, the answer is food. I, <laughs> family, <laughs> family, maybe. <laughs> Just kidding. But food, food, definitely food. I did wonder if you're gonna bring up food. My mum grew up in Malaysia and I feel like it's a very similar thing. People from Malaysia love the food, and there's quite a lot of overlap with the food, right? So Indonesia and Malaysia are close together. They both have satay, um, but that's fantastic. Thank you so much. So let's get into talking about the appearance ideal in Indonesia. I wonder if you could describe for us, for our listeners, what the appearance ideal in Indonesia looks like and where it comes from as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So I think uh, the standard of beauty or, you know, as you call it, the appearance mm-hmm. ideal in Indonesia is um, light skin. Um and slim or skinny bodies, right? And long black hair. Um, and in in my first book, we, t- you know, I talk a little bit about how um, different colonizations obviously um, has impacts, right? In terms of what the sort of appearance ideal is in the way that usually it is still the light skin or the white skin color, right? But yet the meanings of that white skin uh, differs depends on like who's in power, right? right. So when we have Dutch colonization, uh, we see the European white as the standard of beauty. And then when we had Japanese colonization it's Japanese white that is considered um, beautiful and then as we gain um, or proclaim our independence um, we then have like Indonesian whiteness and and now we we've sort of shifted to a different sort of like less um, nation-based kind of white beauty ideals Um, but nonetheless throughout this sort of like years and I also talk about the pre-colonial and even then Mm -hmm. in poems we often see that the ways in which that women beautiful women um, were being described were through uh, their light skin color right so through metaphors um, such as um, um, like marble white marble or the um, what do you call it like uh, the gold right or like shining things right so the waxing moon like or the full moon right. so things that highlight um, bright or light skin um, again but at the time 
colorism and racism or ideas of race um, are not yet conflated. And so I think that's always intriguing to see how at times racism and colorism sort of conflate and other times we need to divorce them to have a better understanding. That's super interesting. And there's so much in there already. I think what might be surprising to some people is how the preference for light skin predates colonization. I don't know if I really had thought about that in any detail, but I imagine it's in part at least to do with wealth and class and status and not having to work outside in the fields. It's also super interesting to hear you reference different types of whiteness. Like you mentioned European whiteness, Japanese whiteness, Indonesian whiteness, um, And I just don't think we're used to hearing about different types of whiteness. And I wonder if you could describe that a little bit more for us. Um, I know it came up in your qualitative work with Indonesian women, where you interviewed them to speak about the practice of skin lightening. And I wonder if there's anything that you can draw on from those interviews, those conversations about what those different types of whitenesses mean or look like that might help our audience kind of picture it a little bit more. Yeah, and um, actually, the ways in which that whiteness is always um, imbued with sort of like different meanings is a good evidence of how whiteness is constructed, right? right? Because if you really think about it, who actually has white skin? Right. right. It's it's not like you can go to a um, home sort of store and then try to pick out a paint color and have that sort of measure use um, as a measure against your skin and say, mm-hmm. OK, you're white, you're, you're not white. Right. Because all of these are socially constructed. Right. Mm-hmm. So these examples actually prove that. Uh, but what um, I'm trying to say here is that um, because every time I share with my friends or, or strangers, mm-hmm. um, you know, who are kind enough to ask, what's your project about or what your research about? And I would say um, about skin lightening products, right? Um, or the consumption or the practice of mm-hmm. skin whitening cream in Indonesia. Um, and people always say, oh, you know, people always want what they don't have, you know, mm-hmm. um, and if it's um, people um, Caucasian white, they would say, oh, you know, it's it's, it's, we want to uh, tan our skin and then you want to have skins like us, right? And that, so that assumption, right? That it is the white skin color of the Caucasian white that Indonesian women want. That assumption is what I challenge in my work, mm-hmm. right? Um, and, and, and the other thing obviously is that there are this multiple categories and meanings of whiteness, right? Obviously, if I say, okay, well, wait a minute, actually, these women don't want to have white skin color the way that Mm -hmm. Caucasian white have. um, Obviously, that means that, well, what kind of white do they want, right? So that kind of like implied in that sort of answer. But going back to your question about um, the interviews that I did, and this is actually where I got the idea that no, Indonesian women um, those who I, I interviewed did not want to have Caucasian white is because I asked them, right? Like, why do you practice this? And they actually said, well, you know, I just want to have my um, skin light um, lighten. And then uh, when I asked, well, is it like um, the European white or in Indonesia, we call it, um, we call them bule, right? That's the slang for Caucasian mm-hmm. white. Um, and they say, oh, no, no, no. I don't want to have white skin color, uh, white skin like bule. And they say that uh, bule skin color is white, but it's reddish. 
they say, right? And they say like, um, they use examples like, it's kind of like shrimp, right? Kind of like white and reddish. So, so they say, no, definitely, definitely not Caucasian white. So they say, it's kind of like Indonesian white, right? Um, and so that's when I started thinking. And then that allows me to, when I look at the advertisements for beauty products, that kind of like frames how I read these um, skin um, uh, or, or beauty products, right? Um, and what's also interesting is uh, some of them actually said, um, you know, Indonesian white is best. Um, Japanese white is okay, but Chinese white is not. Right. And so as you ask, you know, how can we actually tell the thing is we can't like yeah. I cannot. I mean, but there are these sort of uh, sometimes racist. Right. Um, sometimes whatever, you know, um, you know, trivial ways of, oh, this is how you know that they're Japanese and this is how you know that they're they like Chinese. Right. But, you know, how. Right. And I'm Indonesian. Um, I'm also um uh, Chinese through my father's right mm -hmm. aside. So, so it's, it's, you know, in reality is a very complex sort of like racial, right. ethnic mm -hmm. and skin color, you know, categories. And so obviously the reason why I think people, Indonesian women, those who I interviewed prefer Japanese white, um, as opposed to Chinese white, obviously relates to the colonization, the Japanese colonization, uh, where we, um, have internalized that, you know, Japanese white is good. Right. Mm -hmm. And also um, in Indonesia, there there has been this sort of like history of discrimination against Chinese people. Right. right? And so obviously um, the, the idea that Chinese whiteness is not desirable is related to that. And so in my book, I talk about, you know, in, in the United States, we we have this saying that the lighter um, is better or the lighter, the better. Uh, but in Indonesia, you actually cannot say that. Right. Because the lighter is only better in so far as um, the accompanying ethnic ethnicity or race um, that that signifies that whiteness is one that is desirable. Right. Like that Chinese whiteness. Yeah. And that really ties back into the idea about how colorism and racism can interplay, can entwine. Because in this case, we have this preference for a light skin color, but that in itself is contingent on ethnicity. And as you're saying, due to the discrimination in Indonesia against Chinese people, Chinese white, despite it being a light color, is not seen as desirable. So that is so interesting, so important, and has given me a lot to think about. And so the other term that you use in your work that I'd love to, to speak about is cosmopolitan whiteness and I'd love for you to share a little about what you mean by that and I know that ties in to your work analyzing skin lightening advertisements skin tanning advertisements and so would love to hear more on that yeah so um the cosmopolitan whiteness so I I talk about um the kind of like historical um evolution, I guess, if, if I want to call it that, kind of like the, the shift from European whiteness and then um, in the, uh, Japanese whiteness and then Indonesian whiteness. And then I talk about post-1998 reform, right? So everything mm -hmm. is sort of like really grounded in sort of its own historical context. And what I notice is that if in the Indonesian sort of like white sort of period or the beginning of independence, right? There is this sort of na national sort of like nation building kind of like projects, right? And therefore you need this idea like Indonesian whiteness, Indonesian white. Um, and then you have on, uh, or like in the advertisement, the women are usually um, 
you can signify them as either Indonesian, but the way that Again, what is interesting is um, a lot of the times, even till today, actually, um, the Indonesian white uh, sort of celebrities or models um, are usually of mixed race, right? Because then they are the one who have like lighter skin and, and all of that stuff. Um, and so, but what is interesting then um, in the post-1998 reform and um, what, what that allows us to have is um, the kind of like the flood, um, the flooding of um, magazines from... Um, out of the country, right? Mm -hmm. Foreign magazines. And some of them were um, translated into Indonesian language, mm -hmm. such as Cosmopolitan. So we have our own Indonesian version of Cosmopolitan, right? Mm -hmm. As part of the big um, transnational corporation yeah. of that magazine. So what I did was um, when I look at the advertisements for skin whitening cream, it no longer only features women of, let's say, you know, from Indonesia or or if it's a Japanese brand, then it would be represented by a Japanese model, right? Mm -hmm. What happens now is we have a French um, brand that is represented by a South Korean or Chinese sort of models, mm -hmm. right? Um, and then sometimes American um, um, sort of brands with women from you know, other parts of the world, right? Um, could be like European. And so I noticed that the whiteness here is no longer attached to a nation, right? And so it's a cosmopolitan sort of version of whiteness where you can no longer pinpoint, you know, this whiteness is Indonesian, this whiteness is European, this whiteness is that. Like there, so so in this cosmopolitan whiteness, right? Um, not only that whiteness is no longer attached to a nation, but whiteness is no longer attached to physical sort of like, you know, substance uh, or, or like um, signifiers, right? In other words, you know, you, you cannot even tell, is she Caucasian? Is she this, right? And so, um, and, and, and that sort of like bodies as the body, the, fe the female body of the model sort of um, is being circulated um, across nations. Because remember before, um, if you have an advertisement for Indonesian um, target market, then it's modeled by Indonesians, right? And it stays in Indonesia. But in this sort of post-reform, the, the same advertisement that is used in Indonesia may be used in Malaysia, may be used in other countries as well, right? So the same body sort of travels across nations and become a transnational figure themselves, mm -hmm. right? And so that's, you know, kind of like, okay, so now we're in this cosmopolitan whiteness where whiteness becomes even more elusive, right? Um, and at the same time, seemingly attainable because, hey, now everybody can be white, right? But at the same time, it is even like harder to like, you know, become white because who knows like what white is anymore, right? Because the meanings have expanded and at the same time, it, it's still white, right? Um, that is still um, the sort of the standard beauty ideal is still white, right? Um, and, and that's why I also want um, to analyze skin tanning ads. Mm. Because again, going back to the story of every time I, I, I shared, this is what I, um, I'm doing research on. Everybody always said, oh, it's the same thing. Right. We want to be like you. You want to be like us. People can never be pleased with what they have. And actually, when I um, analyzed the skin tanning ads um, versus the skin whitening cream, there are significant and meaningful differences. One, right? Tanning ads talk a lot about choice and control. Mm -hmm. What I mean by that is that they will 
make sure that the um, target market or the women have the ability to control how dark they or you want mm-hmm. to be, right? Yeah. So in other words, they will make sure that, you know, don't worry that you'll be too dark, right? Um, and one of the ads literally say, use this brand for, and I quote, the color you control, right? Mm-hmm. So when I look at these advertisements, the word control, the word choice, right? It, you know, mm-hmm. and use this dial, right? So you can dial up to this point or this dark, right? So in other words, you still are in control. You will never have to worry about this, you know, being too dark, because at the core of that is still what I think is anti-blackness, mm. right? This deep, right? Even though it's tanning, it, it's not about wanting to be brown. It's not right. about wanting to be black. In right. fact, this tanning ads use words like tan, bronze, mm. or deepest bronze, right? But they don't say, you know, um, brown your skin or blacken your skin, right? So they don't even flirt, right? With this sort of like ideas of racial transformation or desire to to have black skin, let alone to be black, right? Um, And also the other thing is like in whitening ads, um, they they would use, um, even though our our language is Indonesian language, right? And it is published in Indonesia, most labels actually use the English word white, right? for their brand, they would literally use the word or the words uh, white beauty Mm. in English, right? So they evoke, right? This sort of European notion of whiteness. Or again, there's another label um, that is called white detox, right? And so again, we are told that, you know, that white is perfect. And actually, again, there is a brand that is called white perfect, right? but but in tanning ads, mm. you are you are not told to detox. Mm. The word that they use is actually enhance. Mm. You can enhance your skin color, right? So when you see this, you see that there there is this sort of colorism, racism, and anti blackness even in skin tanning ads that are operating in these um, advertisements. And that's when I was like, okay, actually, this is not the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's that's so powerful, and I think it's this, the subtleties of language. So, like doing that deep analysis and and looking at all of those ads, and just to um, to make sure I've got this right, it was the tanning ads in the US magazines, and then the whitening ads in the Indonesian magazines. Yes, I apologize, yeah. I forgot to mention the context. Yes, yeah, and what I am finding as we're we're talking, we've naturally gravitated to talk almost exclusively about women, and mm-hmm. I, I wonder. What's your thoughts on the ideal for men? Is it as important for men in Indonesia to have light skin or is that quite a gendered phenomenon? It is quite a gendered phenomenon based on two things. One, um, based on the advertisement, right? Uh, these are all in women's magazine yeah. and even the products itself are, are, are called with um, these kinds of, sort of like gendered um, ideal. Um, and then... And when there was one, I found one advertisement um, for male um, and it is called white active. 
right? Because it's not about you being beautiful, yeah. right? It's about you being active, even as you like, you know, um, lighten your skin. Uh, and so the funny thing is like, I don't really see a lot of that advertisement and I don't see them because I think I, I I did like three years of analysis mm-hmm. um, and I don't really see that. That was like a treasure. Uh, mm-hmm. And that is all that I can say. So one is based on my advertisements and the second is based on my interviews. Mm-hmm. So I ask these women again, do you think, you know, um, men use them? Um, you know, uh, in your, you know, um, community and all that kind of stuff. And they say, um, you know, the thing is like with men, you are even considered macho. And they use that word macho during the interview, even though it is an Indonesian language uh, interviews um, that if you are, if you have like darker skin, right? Right. So in other words, manhood or manliness or masculinity Mm -hmm. is defined by uh, darker skin color for men versus women, it's sort of um, lighter skin or whiter skin, right? And so um, they even say, you know, men can do whatever they want, right? And and women have to really take care of their skin. And if there are men um, who would use skin whitening cream, uh, one one person actually said that um, her coworker uh, would like really hide it, you know, under under his um, his um, you know in in the drawer, like mm-hmm. under you know all of that. And then um, she also said something about his sexuality, right? Mm-hmm. And so again, it is being tied to um, masculinity um, of like what real man should look like, right? Um, and how um, heterosexes. Right. Um, and, you know, you know, in some ways, these sort of like ideas or ideals, beauty be- uh, or parents ideals are. Yeah, that's it's very interesting to me because I think we also see parallels of that across racialized groups as well. Um, I have one very important question to ask you left at the end of the interview. We ask all of our, our guests on the show to answer this. So it's. Essentially, what is your your favorite cake? Why? (laughs) And if you can, if there's an Indonesian favorite cake or dessert, that gets bonus points. Yay. Okay. This is, you're saving the best for last, aren't you? Always. always. (laughs) The best question. Yeah. So um, I am going to say Srikaya, right? Um, And it has a texture and taste almost like flan. And that is, you know, every time I serve it to my friends here, um, because that is the only dessert I can make. I, I do not bake, <laughs> I do not cook, but yeah, because yeah. I love this so much, I had to ask my mother, how do you make yeah. this? You know, obviously. Um, and so when, because that is the only thing that I could make, I would serve that. And every time I serve it, everybody said, oh, this tastes just like flan. But instead of sugar, we use palm sugar or gula jawa, right? And, and we use coconut milk. Right. Right. And so, it, but with the texture and the, the taste kind of, kind of like that flan, that kind of like, yeah. you know, very yeah. soft and it just melts in your mouth and like Yum. sweetness. So, oh, yay. Now, now I have to make one. <laughs> yeah, you have, to. you have to. We're still trying to work out how we can have a very important work trip over to come and visit you in Hawaii. I think that's yes needs to happen and then you can make it. I am ready. Normally, normally we're like, oh, you can come over here and visit us at the Center for Appearance Research in Bristol. But I think 
on this occasion we all need to come and visit you in Hawaii I think that yes please yes a better deal I thank you so much for, for being on the show it's been an absolute delight speaking with you and been so interesting um I think our audience are gonna love it thank you so much for inviting me this is so much fun That was super interesting to listen to. I actually came to present virtually at one of our car weekly team meetings a few months ago. And it was really good to hear her talk again just now. I also really learned a lot about the link between appearance standards and colonization, like how she was saying about the ideal for light skin predates colonization. I really want to dig more into the history around that. And I think I definitely need to read Ayu's book. Same. I think that's such an important point about how that preference for light skin came into play before colonization because I think there is that assumption that it's because and solely because of colonization obviously colonization is a part but it's it's not the full story so I think that is super super interesting and the thing that I'm still thinking about a lot is this idea of whiteness so what is whiteness so I was talking about cosmopolitan whiteness European whiteness Japanese whiteness and Chinese whiteness and so all of these different types of whitenesses this if that's mm-hmm. even a word. Um, and then how racism comes into play. So as I was talking about how Japanese whiteness is preferred in Indonesia over Chinese whiteness due to racism. So then there's this really complicated interplay between racism, so discrimination due to one's racialized group, and then colorism, so the discrimination due to one's skin shade. And normally I had thought about colorism being something that cues racism, but that's not the case in this situation. So my mind is blown. I have a lot more to think about, but I'm really grateful for the opportunity to have this conversation with Ayu. Yeah, I so agree. There's so much to think about here. Um, And we really hope that you found the conversation as fascinating as we did. Perfect. So all that is left to say is a big thank you to Ayu for for joining me and speaking to me for the podcast. Thank you to you, Maya, for your first co-hosting session, especially in this big week after your PhD viva. (laughs) Big, big week. I can't wait to record more with you as we go on with the podcast. And then, of course, thank you to our listeners for tuning into the show. Remember, if you have enjoyed this episode, please do share, subscribe, rate and review. It helps other people find the podcast and it gives us a little boost. It really does help. Thank you so much, Nadia, for having me. Can't wait to record with you in the future. Uh, And remember, you can keep up to date with all the centre's work on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. All the links are in the bio. Okay, so until next time. Bye. Bye.